Hello and welcome to the Sci-Fi FX Podcast. This is episode number 101. And this week we're discussing our book club choice for this month, which was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. By Jules Verne. By Jules Verne. And I'm your host, Carl. Today I have with me Big Dog. And Troy. Hi. And we're all in one room. Oh, wow. It's weird. Not Not over Skype. I know. It's funny. Okay. <laughs> We're laughing. Terrifying, in fact. <laughs> All right. So, um, I liked it. What about you guys? I've yeah. always liked it. Yeah, I, I have too. This is not the first time I read it, but yes. first time I listened to it. Yeah, I read the I read it the first time when I was eight years old. I was a little older than that when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I was a little older. But it has been twenty five years, so it was time. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while since I read it too, and um. Great book as always. The um, I will say the audible narrator. <laughs> That's where I was going. Uh, it nearly killed it. Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> yeah, this is the first time I had to actually speed up the narration in order to get through it. I bought another app for my phone so I could do that. <laughs> yeah, two X was just about right to listen to this one. At. It was the, the audible app didn't go fast enough. My I had to buy another app. Yeah, it, it was. <laughs> It was literally, I think the guy had studied under the narration style of William Shatner. Shatner would have been an improvement. You see, this guy talked like this for those and of... <laughs> took out all of the excitement. See, for those of you who can remember this far, this guy sounds a lot like Paul Harvey done badly. <laughs> yeah, but that, you know, that didn't really... It made it hard to listen to, but the story was still awesome. I had to go through a pot and a half of coffee to get through the first four hours. (laughs) (laughs) While working. (laughs) But I didn't have that problem after I sped it up. No. 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 So, as to the story itself, um, this occurred to me while I was was listening to it. Um, Is Jules Verne the first person to use product placement? No. (laughs) He's not? No, that goes back even into the Middle Ages. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, God, let me think about this one. Well, while you think, because what made me think of it was like every time they mention one of the seals on the Nautilus doors or the suits, it's always an India rubber suit or an India rubber seal. <laughs> and it made me think back to the time machine where he's talking about his camera. Yeah. And what was it, a, a Kodak camera? Yeah. He keeps... Well, he's probably the first one to do that. With modern with modern product placement, as we think about it, yeah, that's yeah. kind of what made me think about. It. I'm like, wait a minute! In, in the time machine, he kept referring to his camera by brand name, <laughs> and it, it almost made me think. I wonder if if he made any money off it, or if he just did it just to do it, you know, just to identify the product more precisely in his writing, or did he actually get a little, you know, financial he, scratch for it? I don't it? think he got any financial scratch for it. That, that <laughs> might have been a bonus. Do our modern did our modern movie guys get the idea from him? <laughs> you know why not? I mean they they got everything else from Vern. New print, little, yellow, different. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean he he's inspired pretty much everything else out there, so why not that too? Yeah. In which and, case, now I want to borrow you know, Wells's time machine and go beat the crap out of him. <laughs> Dude, you don't know what you're doing to the future. That's not his fault if we have people these days who can't think for themselves. Yeah, well, that's true. 
<laughs> well, apparently he did all the thinking for us. Yes, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't remember where I was going with this now. <laughs> Product placement? Yeah, there was that. And drink Coke. Yes, oh. Coke. <laughs> <laughs> Pizza? Pizza. Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're wearing logos right now. We're seriously. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the... Um, what was your favorite part of the story? Honestly, the description of the Nautilus and listening to Ned Land talk about how he was going to get off the ship. <laughs> Ned, yeah, Ned Land. There's something I want to wanted to bring up. Is he like the exception to the rule for Canadians? Yes, because yeah. Canadians are always supposed to be like super nice and polite and helpful, and all he wants to do is hit things and break them and kill them. Well, they generally have this little <laughs> thing up there known as freedom, <laughs> and he didn't get that. So, apparently, if you lock one up and shake it around a bit... <laughs> yeah, but his profession was going out harpooning whales. I mean, did he do that because he was such a violent person, or well, th- this did is being trapped Canadians on a boat in make him do this? Yeah, I know. That, so. that might have been a different kind of Canadian back then. We That's, don't know what happened between then and World War One. to change true. all that. That's true. I liked... One of the things I liked the most about this versus War of the Worlds, which was our last book club book... Yeah. Was he actually bothered to name the important characters in the book instead of calling them my brother? Yes. Although, for some reason, even though Ned Land had a name, half the time they referred to him as Fred Ned or Fred Land or whatever. Friendland. Yeah, Friendland, Friend yeah. I'm like, he's got a name. Just call him Ned. Why name him and then constantly call him Friendland? Well, he's got a name. Everybody had a name, but Nemo didn't have it. Well, he was Captain Nemo, but that wasn't his name. Well, yeah, that's, that's his name so in the sequel. That's that's how he introduces himself, though. So that is his, his name, as far as the story is concerned. Yeah, it wasn't like you know the the vicar <laughs> or something like that, or the lady on the carriage. You know, he actually bothered to give people names. Well, there's people that actually did talk like that back then, where they'd be like, you know, friend. Carl, friend yeah. Troy. Yeah, and that's usually yeah. how you knew if you were going to get in a fight because right. they'd either talk to you or they'd say, "Well, I'm not your friend. I'm not and your buddy, guy. Pull out a gun. Yeah, yes. like I'm not your guy, pal. I'm not your pal, buddy. That's buffo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, little South Park reference there. Yes. Canadians listening. <laughs> All right. So, um, what was your favorite part, Big Dog? I actually liked a lot of the moments where uh, Nemo was talking to Professor Aramax and going through all the little misconceptions that Aramax had. <laughs> He'd go through something like, well, if that's what you think, then no, here's something else entirely. That <laughs> then you would be for. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's something about this ship's captain being such a learned man. He's a bit of a jack. <laughs> yeah, those were probably my favorite moments too. Well, let's face it, Nemo is a certified sociopath. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's there because he hates people. Well, although I, I really enjoyed the part where um, he takes him to Atlantis. Yeah, that was that. Cool. That is, I've always loved that bit, and it's just really good. And what's amazing is the book is so technically oriented and so based in science mm-hmm. that by the time you get to Atlantis, you buy it. Yeah. You know you shouldn't, <laughs> but you do. Yeah. <laughs> well, there were several scenes that I was I was really fond of, like the coral graveyard and mm-hmm. 
Um, I mean, yeah, stepping up those stair steps, seeing the volcanoes, uh, the underwater volcanoes, stuff like that. That's very impressive work. I mean, that's visually stunning in the mind. Yeah, yeah, that was... I mean, the the technical descriptions were just gorgeous all around. Didn't have a whole lot of character development. He kind of used (laughs) archetypal stocks, but he made them work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all you really needed for this story. I mean, didn't need a whole lot of character development in it. Yeah. It's Mm. fairly short, straightforward. It's... It's the, a good little action adventure thing with some science stuff thrown yeah, in. Yes, the precursor to our modern day techno thriller. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I kept looking at this, and I I kept thinking Hunt for Red October in the back of my head. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like everything that's in this really is in Red October, with the exception of nukes. The yeah, only and giant mm-hmm. squid attacks. That's what Red October was missing. <laughs> <laughs> that would have made it more exciting. Yeah. Yes. But it's a it's a different thing for giant squids to take on a really massive nuclear powered sub, as opposed to the Nautilus, even though as powerful as it was. I don't know. I think they could do it <clears throat> with its electric forces <laughs> powering it. <laughs> I think they could do it. I did like the the way they went into all this great detail on how the Nautilus was powered and you know how it how all the devices on it worked and even the electric bullets and stuff. Oh, yeah. I loved all that technical jibber jabber that they threw in there. Well, it's the kind of thing <laughs> that you get the feeling somebody could actually build it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it kind of gives you a guideline as to, you know, this is how you would do it. And it kind of makes <laughs> me wonder, has anybody built it? That would be my question. Because uh, even, like a, this, even in miniature. Well, something <laughs> like this, when you think about it, I mean, yeah, you figure they're not going to ever be able to build the actual novels or at least a private person. But I'd love to actually see somebody who was so in love with the story that they actually went out of their way to do it. Yeah, even if to a small scale. No. Yeah. You know, a little one-man version of it. Yeah, I mean, even a three-man would be a, a nice little thing just to see how it would work. I mean, we talked last week on our podcast, you know, about how Star Trek inspired so many people no. of, of, the, of our given generation. Well, before that, Vern was the guy. No. Mm-hmm. I so, how many engineers were inspired by him? Several. That's where nice few. I would imagine Some, yeah. somebody had to have built the thing. No, <laughs> you yeah. think anyway? But unlike everything else out there, I don't know if anybody's ever really looked it up to find out. Somebody no. on Wiki. Or <laughs> I'm sure there's something out there. Yes. Okay, so what was the part of the book that bugged you the most? The narrator. <laughs> no, the, the book. The story itself. Um, I think we'd all say the narrator as far as that yeah. goes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I really had any one part. The um, Aranax's right hand man was it? Conseil. Conseil. He, yeah. He kind of got on my nerves after a while, and he was a completely likable character. <laughs> well, the biggest problem is, is that when you're talking about a character like that, He's his right-hand man, and you're hoping for something more like Cato, and you got Conseil instead. He's a nice he's a nice guy, but there's nothing more to him <laughs> other than to agree with everything that... Yeah, I, mean, I, I kind of got the yeah. idea is like he would be walking around the ship in chains. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he was that subdued. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's like you're hoping that he'd be kind of like the not only the right-hand man, but the bodyguard sort of thing. Yeah. He's yeah. not that. He's not that at all. <laughs> No, they left all the physicality. Step up and show some backbone. You're a slave on this ship now, whether you like it or not. Snap out of it. 
Yeah. Well, the only thing that really set him apart with that is that he actually agreed with Ned Land's uh, part or plans well before Professor Aramax did. Yeah, but I don't know if it's the narrator or or if it was actually like that in the book. Because, like I said, it's been 25 years since I actually read the thing. <laughs> but the way the narrator presented it, it's like, yeah, we should go along with Ned. He's right. But for <laughs> now, let's just play it easy. It's, it's like he was so laid back. Yeah. It's like, dude, do you have a pulse? <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine what the, the fight scenes with the squids and stuff were like if you listened to that at real time for the Audible book. No, I, I don't really <laughs> it would have been it. so boring. But... Okay, so Big Dog, what was the thing that bugged you the most in the story? It's sort of the way Ned Land came across sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I like I like Conse for the most part. He did, but he does annoy me. Ned Land, though, it's like he wants to fight. He wants to fight, and all of a sudden he's like, "I'm depressed. I'm gonna go lay down now." <laughs> yeah, it's like for a while there, I thought he was gonna go so crazy, he's just gonna jump into the ocean and swim off himself. And I know that's not how it plays out, but I'm like, "Why don't you?" I mean, if you're that desperate at this point in time, what's it gonna stop you? You oh, know where Land is. Yeah, he's totally bipolar. Yeah, yeah. But he he's just like, "No, we're not gonna do it this time." And eventually, Nemo finally pulls a big one. And then goes out of his way to say, we got to do it tonight. It's got to happen tonight. But that's not the way it started. <laughs> yeah. it, it Can we go crazy. tonight? Can we go tonight? Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Oh. Are we there yet? <laughs> like, if you're so dedicated <laughs> to the idea that it's going to happen, then grab Conseil and run. Because he's the one that agrees with you anyway. If Aramax <laughs> wants to be on the boat, fine. Let him be on the boat. He's got Nemo there. And apparently that's all he needs. Because him and Nemo were pals for the longest time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but Aramax was biding his time. He wanted off the boat, too, just not right away. And yeah, he wasn't yeah. in any hurry. No, he was in no hurry to do it. I mean, and as he said along the way, he wouldn't have minded sticking around knowing where it was going to be because he lost track of time mm-hmm. while there. It wasn't yeah. until Nemo started acting against... Crazy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah he wasn't He was, wasn't acting as friendly towards him that mm-hmm. he was like, okay, now I realize, hey, I'm stuck on a boat again. <laughs> while everybody else is like, hey, I'm stuck on a boat. Yeah, but his whole point was he was he was there to learn as much as he could in the idea that science could recreate an Nautilus. Yeah, and and that he could learn as much about the undersea world as he could yeah. and publish a book on it. Which, you know, <laughs> great aspirations. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of wondering if this is like the predecessor to Jacques Cousteau. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the sea is teeming with life. Yes, it is teeming with life. Okay, so the part that bugged me the most is um, when they're stuck under the Arctic Pole. Ah, yes. And they're running out of air. And I kept thinking back to many, many hours before where the narrator had talked about it so slowly, where Nemo talked about how he could use electricity and certain chemicals to produce clean, fresh air that they could breathe. But he didn't normally because he preferred the sea air. So what's stopping you so, Yeah, what's stopping <laughs> you from doing that? I mean, if you had the capability, I understand that he may not have actually incorporated that into the Nautilus design, which is why he didn't, which is why I'm assuming he didn't do it. But if you had the capability and you were building a boat that was going to go underwater, why would you not put that in as a backup system well, in case like you did. were trapped down there? It sounded like he did. He was just having a conseil moment. Yeah, we'll write it out. See how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna write it out for a couple days down here, even though we don't have any air. <laughs> I mean, 
Just turn the generator on and start breathing some fresh air. <laughs> just because I can do it doesn't mean I will. That, that just that annoyed me the whole time they were under there. I was just, turn it on, get some air. But yeah, I mean, other than that, uh, there were the um, the psychotic personality twists periodically with Nemo and, and Ned Land. And see, that was that was the part I liked best. <laughs> see, I don't I don't mind so much that Nemo had those moments because he's already been set up for that anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, he's predestined for that. Yeah, I mean, he's he says, okay, I'm done with human contact except for my crew. I'm going to go down here into the ocean, and I'm going to be cut away from it entirely. Yeah. The fact um, that he has any decorum whatsoever astounds me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that he even bothered to save him in the first place. <laughs> Land, on the other hand, I'm surprised he wasn't trying to find weapons lockers at every other turn. <laughs> yeah, no joke. Uh, I mean, seriously, it, it almost would become the cook in Under Siege, you know, that Stevenson yeah. Hall moment where he's trying to attack everybody and their brother. <laughs> But Ned Land, unfortunately, him and his harpoon, I don't think he was going to take Captain Nemo out. I, no, I get to go whaling! <laughs> <laughs> Did you say something to me? My eyes are almost shut, and I know you said something. <laughs> I'm just the cook. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, all in all, very enjoyable story. Um, it's definitely dated, but... Well, that yeah. doesn't hurt it at all. No, if anything, that lends to its charm. Exactly. Because, um, you know, the the parts where they're... Young kids are going to have trouble comprehending the parts where they're talking about how many weeks it took to get news to somewhere and stuff like that. But well, young that's kids have a problem fathoming what that mailbox at the end of, uh, at the oh, end that's, of your sidewalk that's is. That's true, too. But it is... I, I still think it should be required reading in school. But. Well, yeah. There's many things that should be. Yeah, that aren't. But have you guys ever read the sequel? No, I've seen the miniseries based on the sequel, but I haven't read the book. <laughs> the book, the one with Patrick Stewart as Nemo. <laughs> they finally actually tell you he's an Indian, and they get Patrick yeah. Stewart. Yeah, bravo. <laughs> bravo. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> it's John Wayne as Genghis Khan all over again. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> so, is the sequel, is the, the book version of the sequel a good one? Yeah. I mean, it's it's every bit as good as this. Oh, great. I'm going to have to. It's just one of those that, that most people there. never think about it. Yeah. Because this is kind of the one that everybody knows. Mm. This is the one Disney made a movie of. Yeah. But it's uh, <laughs> The Mysterious Island. Yeah. They, they tell you Nemo is actually this this Indian prince named Dakar. No, which is where he got all the money from to build the Nautilus. Exactly. It makes sense. <laughs> and it gives you an idea of the oppression of the people and all that kind of stuff that he's heavily involved in. Yeah. So I mean, it's worthy. I, there again, it's, it's been a quarter century since I read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes me feel old when you say things like that. <laughs> Actually, now that I think about it, now that I think about it, it's, it's been almost 30 years. Stop it. <laughs> We feel even older. It's been a while. All right. So on that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a question. What's your favorite technical aspect of the Nautilus exactly? The whole thing is you know, just as, as a, a whole. whole. Uh, I mean, if I had to single out one part of it that I liked, it had nothing to do with the technical part. I want to, I want to see the library. Yeah. yeah. 
And see, I wanted to, I'd love to have seen like the big windows when they're underneath the water. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. The ones that, you know, they could block them or unblock them at their will so you could see under that, all that. Yeah. When I'd love to have been up there where the big lamp was to where I could <laughs> actually look out where the guy, they had the guy sitting and staring and they had the big lamp for him. I thought that'd be gorgeous to sit there and look at all that. And I'm like most people. When I think of the Nautilus, I think of the one from Disney's movie. Which I, I still think is a beautiful looking that is a beautiful model. Show. I mean, it it I'm, looks I'm awesome. I'm kind of spoiled though because um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah. I, I like that version too. <laughs> well, I yeah, too. there is that one, but that, that's not the one that's been it, ingrained in my mind. It's nowhere near white, but it just looks cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not the one that's been ingrained in my no, mind since no, I was a little child. You know? No, you're right. The Disney version is pretty much the quintessential version. Yeah, and the movie's not that bad either. It's actually, well, the movie's really good. It's pretty good movie. movie. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I actually intend to watch it again here now that I've read the book again. It's I want to so watch it again. Long. It's yeah. been so long since I've seen that version. Me too. I think it's on Netflix streaming. Oh, probably. I'll have to check. It, it is. Oh, okay, cool. I can watch it then. <laughs> yeah, the, Disney's got some kind of deal with Netflix, so they yeah, there's all a lot of Disney stuff Marvel. On but, uh, yeah, good stuff. <laughs> And, you know, between this and Wells, we've, we've pretty much got all the precursors for um, Steampunk. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is where it begins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, except the Nautilus was electrical-powered. So? <laughs> so it's not technically Steampunk. Most Steampunk isn't technically Steampunk. Well, that's well they also have Dieselpunk. Oh, well, yeah. You know, that's like different. That. That's diesel-powered. It's all Victorian <laughs> age, though. That's true. That's true. Um... Uh, so anything else you guys want to cover on the book? Well, just, um, it surprised me how many characters that they had on the ship and on other vessels and whatnot that were actually based in real life. He actually uh-huh. used actual naval commanders. Yeah. And then, like, the, the ship they were on was the Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking a French novelist writing about <laughs> Lincoln five years after he was assassinated. Yeah. I, I think... He, I'm, I'm sure he did that on purpose to lend that air of possible reality to it. Yeah. You know, to make it feel more realistic. And But he could have picked anybody. Yeah, he could have. But he didn't. No, he didn't. <laughs> well, that's the wonderful thing about the story was uh, the journalistic quality of it. I mean, it's the same thing that happened with War of the Worlds where it really did tell, sound like they were reporting events mm-hmm. of what was going on around them versus just being... Well, we started here one day and we moved over here. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it wasn't just, you throw it in the middle of a story, this was an account, and it plays out so well that way. I, I don't yeah. know that I would have wanted this as a straight story any other way. It makes me wonder, was was Byrne actually, uh, did he have anything to do with journalism back then? I don't know. Because I know a, no, a lot of novelists back then Quite were probably, journalists. Yeah, a lot I mean, of Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if he was a journalist or not. Which on the on Poe, watch the Raven. Good I did. Movie. That is a good movie. Yeah, that is awesome. Okay. Anyway, back to Bert. <laughs> <Back to Bert. laughs> there's there's our our ad for the week. Watch the Raven. <laughs> if you like Jules Verne, watch the Raven. <laughs> if you like Jules Verne, watch Back to the Future Three. <laughs> Jules and, and Bert. Bert. <laughs> All right. So, do we call it a, a close on 20,000 Leagues? It seems seems pretty straightforward, pretty, unless yeah. you really want to go by it scene by scene. But, yeah. Yeah, which is, yeah. the highlights. 
I don't think we really need to. Everyone knows there's giant squids in it. And <laughs> yeah, giant squids yeah. are cool. Yes, yes, they are. But now for, for more fun, just read the book. Yep. Email us, let us know how you think. All right, so it is time for the randomizer for our next book club book. So do you guys want to sing the song? Yes. <laughs> Wheel, Wheel of morality, morality, turn, turn, turn. Tell us the lesson that we should learn. Crap, it's blank. Do it again. <laughs> we have no future. <laughs> no! Try again. Now. Neuromancer. William Gibson. Wow. All right. So we go from <laughs> steampunk to cyberpunk. Yep. Yeah, we've uh, we've definitely jumped genre there. Yeah, we did. <laughs> Sounds like a natural progression to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've I've never actually read this one, so I, but I've always been intrigued by it. So well, I, your, one of your learn. favorites is Johnny Mnemonic. That's true. That's where it began. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. So I'm I'm looking forward to this one. This is gonna. I think cool. I'm gonna. This enjoy is another it. one I haven't read in like thirty years. <laughs> the Guinness to go out on a limb and say I've never touched it. So, so that'll be fun. Yes. <laughs> All right, well, we will talk to you all next week then. Have a good one. Bye. See ya. Bye. Combine of large corporations and city-states. Having disappeared the USA, I thought I'd better have the USSR in there for the sake of continuity. Had I disappeared the USSR instead, I might eventually have been burned as a witch, so just as well. Today's reader might keep in mind that I wrote Neuromancer with absolutely no expectation that it would be in print twenty years later. I knew that it was to be published, if I could finish it and if the editor accepted the manuscript, both of which seemed constantly unlikely, as a paperback original, that most ephemeral of literary units, a pocket-sized slab of prose meant to fit in a standard wire rack, printed on high-acid paper and visibly yearning to return to the crude pulp from which it had been pressed, my best hope for the book was that it might find, in whatever modest numbers it would have its debut, some kindred soul or five, probably in England, as I imagined them, or perhaps in France. I didn't anticipate much in the way of an American audience, because I felt that I was writing too deliberately counter to what I had come to assume the American audience had been taught to want from science fiction. I was doing this because I couldn't for the life of me seem to do it any other way. Having been talked into signing a contract by the late Terry Carr, without whom there would certainly be no neuromancer, I found myself possessed by a dissident attitude that I certainly wasn't about to share with my editor, or really with much of anyone. The only people who got that were a few of the other Tyro writers with whom I would eventually be labeled cyberpunk, and they were far away, mostly in Austin, Texas. Like Case at the book's climax, I was coming in steep, fueled by—I couldn't have told you, though one element was a smoldering resentment at what the genre I'd loved as a teenager seemed to me in the meantime to have become, though I know I had neither the intention nor the least hope that what I was doing— tapping out my ace-special paperback original on an aged manual portable of precision Swiss manufacture would in any way change the course of science fiction. Nor did it, apparently, except to the extent of helping to keep open doors I certainly never built, doors I'd found as a teenager, with names like Bester and Lieber gouged into their lintels. I was recently told that Neuromancer has sold more than a million copies, 
That would be over the past two decades, and I assume in either North American editions or English-language editions. Abroad, it's managed to get itself translated into most of the languages books are translated into, though not yet, as far as I know, Chinese or Arabic. This is something like having an adult child one never hears from, but who evidently does quite well, travels widely, and seems to meet interesting people. My real sympathy, though, is with the bright thirteen-year-old, curled on a sofa somewhere, twenty pages into the book, and desperate to get to the root of the mystery of why cell phones aren't allowed in Chiba City. Hang in there, friend. It can only get stranger. William Gibson, Vancouver, British Columbia, May 17, 2004 Part 1 Chiba City Blues Chapter 1 The sky above the port was the color of television, tuned to a dead channel. It's not like I'm using, Case heard someone say as he shouldered his way through the crowd around the door of the chat. It's like my body's developed this massive drug deficiency. It was a sprawl voice and a sprawl joke. The Chatsubo was a bar for professional expatriates. You could drink there for a week and never hear two words in Japanese. Rats was tending bar, his prosthetic arm jerking monotonously as he filled a tray of glasses with draft Kirin. He saw Case and smiled, his teeth a webwork of East European steel and brown decay. Case found a place at the bar, between the unlikely tan on one of Lonnie's own whores and the crisp naval uniform of a tall African, whose cheekbones were ridged with precise rows of tribal scars. Wage was in here early, with two Joe boys, Rat said, shoving a draft across the bar with his good hand. Maybe some business with you, Case? Case shrugged. The girl to his right giggled and nudged him. The bartender's smile widened. His ugliness was the stuff of legend. In an age of affordable beauty, there was something heraldic about him. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please visit our home on the web at scififx.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at scififx. And we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash scififx. Like us on Facebook. It's an easy way to be kept up to date with all the latest sci-fi news, and you'll be entered to win a free prize. You can also stream our podcast using Stitcher Smart Radio on any mobile device with an internet connection running on iOS, Android, WebOS, or on BlackBerry smartphones. Follow the Fellowship of the Geeks on Twitter at Fellowship Geeks. Check out Geekdom Nation on the web at geekdomnation.com and follow Geekdom Nation on Twitter at Geekdom Nation. <laughs>